0: As the French occupation of Mexico dragged past its fourth year, Napoleon III now had much more than just domestic criticism to consider. In the United States, Ulysses S. Grant increased pressure on President Johnson to act, arguing that to allow Maximilian's rule in Mexico, quote, "...is to permit an enemy to establish himself, and Americans, instead of being the most favored people of the world throughout the length and breadth of this continent, will be scoffed and laughed at," close quote. He did not consider the American Civil War finished while the French remained in Mexico, he informed the president. Grant began to take matters into his own hands, authorizing the Civil War hero General John Schofield to recruit U.S. volunteers and prepare to lead them in battle against Maximilian's Mexican empire. Lest events spiral beyond his control, on December 4, 1865, Johnson used his annual address to Congress to placate hawks like Grant and threaten france quote, we should regard it as a great calamity to ourselves, to the cause of good government, and to the peace of the world should any European power challenge the American people. On December 16, 1865, to ensure the point came across, Seward instructed the U.S. representative to France, John Bigelow, to make known to the French government two points. First, the United States desired friendship. Second, this friendship was impossible unless France ended armed intervention in Mexico. Aware how bellicose anti-French sentiment had become in Washington, the French envoy to the United States sent a diplomat, Le Comte René de Favrenais, to inform Napoleon III in person that the choice was now between supporting Maximilian and war with the United States. To add further steel to the U.S. position, Seward summoned Schofield. The former commander of the Army of Ohio would not be organizing the army Grant had envisioned. Instead, Seward dispatched him to Paris. Quote, I want you to get your legs under Napoleon's mahogany and tell him he must get out of Mexico, Seward stowed, told Schofield. Schofield's view was that, quote, a long and bloody war resulting doubtless in final success in America and probably in a revolution in France, close quote, was apt punishment for Napoleon III. But diplomacy should be tried first. And that's from The Last Emperor of Mexico by Edward Shawcross, 2021. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hard Country podcast. My name is Melissa Ford, and I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Joshua Trevino, the Foundation's Chief of Intelligence and Research. Josh, thank you so much for reading those paragraphs. Uh, about the explota- You said it's about the exploitation of Mexican dysfunction by foreign actors, so thank you for reading that. We will definitely get into a little bit more on that later, but I just wanted to start the episode by acknowledging that this is our very first episode where we're both not in the studio, and uh, we're filming by Zoom yes. today, which is very different than anything we've done in the past.
0: We're not even on the same continents as one another. Where are you now?
1: I am in Bolivia. I'm in Bolivia. I'm here. uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I grew up here. I'm here visiting my family, uh, came home for a family wedding, and so we just figured it would be a good opportunity to try for the first time to film over Zoom and maybe for me to get to talk about Bolivia a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it it is so interesting, Bolivia, and, and, and you're in Cochabamba, which, which I have to tell yeah. you, uh, is not a town I had ever heard of before meeting you before in my life. I I knew uh, La Paz and Sucre, and that's basically it. Um uh, yeah. But uh, but but this is this is really your hometown that you're in, right? Tell us about it.
1: My hometown. I was born here. I grew up here. My mom was born here as well, and it's truly amazing. I think you know I I, I love Cochabamba. I love Bolivia so much, but I think that as the years go by and as I travel a little bit more and as I learn more about, you know, politics and economies, I kind of come to the point that I come back to Bolivia and I see it with new eyes. Um, and And it's kind of sad. It's very sad. I, I love it here. My family is here. I will always come home and I will always love so many things about it. But uh, just, just coming back here makes me realize how how very problematic Bolivia is and and how very problematic Bolivia has always been and how badly things have gotten since since 2006 right since Bolivia took a turn um what happened in socialism. 2006
0: just for the benefit of our of our viewers
1: yeah so so that's when Bolivia started deteriorating exponentially because that's when Bolivia elected a new president a socialist president uh not a lot of people know a lot about Bolivia we've talked about this I feel like it flies under the radar in a lot of international conversations it flies under the radar in in general like a lot of people don't even know where Bolivia is Uh, but I love being able to have conversations with a lot of Americans and explain to them what Bolivia used to be like what happened with Bolivia Uh, but I, I will say I think a lot of how Bolivia is has always been there Bolivia has always been a very problematic country we have always had for example we've always had a lot of protests Mm -hmm. we've always had uh, a huge lack of education a lot of people in bolivia can't read or can't write we have a huge indigenous population i think it's about 60 percent so the majority of of bolivia and, and we're very poor unfortunately there was a time where bolivia a very long time ago where bolivia was the richest country in the world uh, it's been blessed with with so many so many riches. It's geographically very beautiful, but but unfortunately, there's a lot of of ignorance here, and I think a lot of it comes from a lack of education and people that have been stuck in in, in generational poverty, which is very hard to get out of here. And I think that with that, and and then a lot of the misinformation that has been happening for the last couple of decades um there is i guess a sense of entitlement that happens in a lot of countries that start turning to socialism um there's a lot of entitlement that people want to get things for free that people want to have land for free that people don't want to have to work for things and i think a lot of the time countries where there's a lot of inequality where there's a lot of poverty think that that's an easy way to solve all of the problems that are happening and that unfortunately happened
0: sorry oh i apologize for interrupting i, I said redistribution no. right so taking from the house exactly Redistribution yeah, like
1: yeah. of wealth a lot of people have a lot of land we should be able to get some of it some of it, some of it too so why doesn't the government cease some of it mm-hmm. and then we can all share it and so that unfortunately started happening in bolivia and i think that shift in thought is what led to president Evo morales being elected in 2006. And that's when things started shifting for the worst. So I I explained to you, you know, Bolivia has never been perfect, right? For the last, I think it's for the last 50 50 years, um, we've had a lot of like social unrest. There is at least one protest every day in Bolivia or more for the past 50 years. And we have about like 50 social uh, conflicts in Bolivia every single month and so obviously that's more than one a day you see them all the time it was funny here for the wedding we had a lot of Americans visit and they were saying like oh you know we were leaving the airport and there was the roads were blocked and there was stuff happening and we couldn't make it to our reservation and I was like yeah welcome to Bolivia that happens all the time we used to get school canceled a lot because of the protests on the street and it's very commonplace uh so yeah like i was saying bolivia has always had that happen that's not anything new but it's gotten progressively worse as far as the economy um and it's gotten progressively worse as far as how divided bolivia has been and how violent bolivia has gotten Mm. so what happened in 2006 as i was saying is evo morales got elected um and then um in 2019 after evo morales this was you know, almost 14 years later, about 13 years and a half later, he was still in power, believe it or not. There was a time that Bolivia only had presidents for one term. And then eventually, that shifted to two terms. And Evo Morales got elected, because he basically got a huge portion of the population that had never voted before the indigenous population Mm -hmm. to come out and vote for him. And then, once he was in power, he found ways, as a lot of dictators do, to to stay. And he didn't leave for 14 years. And after 14 years, in 2019, he decided that he he didn't want to leave and that he wanted to stay for a fourth term. And so, ever since that happened, you know, Bolivia Bolivia has been full of conflict. Uh, When that happened, basically, he wanted to stay for a fourth term he sought approval through a referendum where the voters would be able to determine if he would be able to run again or not. Right. Voters said no, he ignored them, he decided that he would seek approval from the constitutional courts, and of course they gave it to him, and so he decided that he would run again, and then he declared his fraudulent victory after elections that were filled with irregularities. They were studied, they were found to be irregular elections. I remember at the time, basically they were showing the election results right after the election. Sure. And then it didn't look like it was going well for President Evo Morales. So basically they stopped broadcasting election results for like 24 hours. Really? (laughs) And yeah, the, the electoral authorities just basically suspended showing anything. And then when everything came back on, it was basically able was favored to win and he was accepting his victory and so obviously mass protests broke out everything shut down for almost a month here it was it was very scary there was a lot of violence yeah and
0: it sounds exactly like what happened Everett's, in 1988 in Mexico yeah uh, i don't know if you remember yeah. this but uh, right when the um, when uh, i don't think it was ine at the time but the, but the counting basically stopped. They said it was a computer crash. And then when it restarted again, the Puri candidate, this is how they stole it. And I believe they actually did steal it from uh, Cuadema Cárdenas uh, in, uh, in that election. It, it sounds exactly the same, except, of course, with the ideology exactly. flipped. Yeah.
1: that's Yeah, that's interesting that that has happened before in different countries. But that's what happened here. And it's it's almost extra terrible because it shouldn't have happened to begin with. He shouldn't have been allowed to run to begin with but he kept finding ways to be allowed to do it. One of the excuses one time was uh, that it was racism not allowing him to run, and it was his Hmm. human right to be able to run, even though he had already served his terms. But anyway, uh, people people weren't taking it. They were fed up. Bolivia was not on a good path, and people decided that they would, again, protest, and they didn't allow him to get away with it. People took to the streets for like a month, it was very violent. Schools were out. And eventually, they found serious irregularities again with the election. Uh, I believe it was the, the Washington-based uh, Organization of American States that came out and said, this is not legitimate. And eventually, you know, even the police turned, and Morales had to flee Bolivia. And a lot of people celebrated at the time However, since then, you know, like a year later, his party has returned to power. Right now, we're still ruled by the socialists. Uh, we have President Luis Arsenal, which is also, you know, very far left socialist, um, uh, a good friend of all the socialists, a member of the Foro Sao uh, Paulo. Mm. And we we did have a, a right wing uh, president during that that gap of about a year. Um, and she's now in prison under horrific circumstances, as pretty much any opposition here ends up.
0: I didn't know uh, that. All of the I didn't know she uh, ended president. up in jail. Sorry? I apologize. I said, I didn't know she ended up in jail. I knew that she had a tough time because uh, she was the immediate successor, yeah. wasn't she? And then-
1: Yes, exactly, Anya. Yeah. Yep, she is in jail. And then, you know, you know, it's very sad because right wing forces do often end up that way, especially especially in modern politics in Bolivia. Uh, she she tried to run, she didn't have the, the, the popular support. She ended up in jail because she was the opposition. And then there was one other person who was very well liked, someone from Santa Cruz, his name uh, Luis Fernando Camacho. He was very well liked. He actually won 14% of the vote because he was one of the, the big voices that stood up to Evo Morales when all of that stuff was going on in 2019 he is also now in jail uh since the the former party movimiento al socialismo is what we call it mm-hmm. returned to power they took a lot of the opposition that you know stirred up people to protest the the right. unjust elections in 2019 and charged them with terrorism um for protesting against that and for inciting inciting violence and so You know, Bolivia is the kind of country, unfortunately, that, you know, persecutes all political opponents. And there's a there's a big disregard for due process. That's something I've always admired in the United States due process. Mm -hmm. But in Bolivia, a lot of the time we see Bolivia failing to uphold any any sort of rule of law and failing to protect any human rights. And so unfortunately, that's the reality. Um, And yeah, Bolivia, it's, it's it's sad. And right now it's it's not doing well economically. It was very hard hit by COVID, um, places closed for months and, and people here can't afford to miss a paycheck. And so people, people are very much struggling. Uh, there's still a lot of fear because there was so much death here that was also caused by COVID. We don't have the same amount of resources that, you know, states in the U.S. have and so a lot of people did die and that left people paralyzed with fear. I was just you know walking around the city this week and I noticed a lot of people still wear face masks. A lot of people still don't want to get close to other people. Yeah believe it or not seems like forever ago in the U.S. it's, it's, it's very much not forever ago here.
0: You know, in in uh, in Mexico, one of the things that we saw we we, we didn't actually see it that much in two thousand twenty three, but up through two thousand twenty two, uh, you saw face mask use in Mexico City was very robust, uh, very common. Yeah. And and one of one of our um, contacts there in Mexico City explained it to us, and he said it's it's sort of the opposite phenomenon of what you see with people who still wear masks in the United States, because you do you still see people who are out there, and they're either uh, some some minority have legitimate health concerns, but 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 overwhelmingly, it's 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 kind of a political signal at this point more than anything. Yes. But but what was explained, uh, this will go into a question for you, uh, but what was explained to me that in Mexico, it was a phenomenon of distrust. In public institutions, so um, mm-hmm. uh, essentially, there there was a critical mass of people who would actually mask up as soon as the public health bureaucracy, or the city government, or the state government said that COVID was under control. Like that was the signal to well, definitely now we know it's a problem because and uh-huh. they and they put the masks on. Is that do you, do you see something similar happening? Uh, kind of this counter signaling with the population there in Bolivia.
1: Yes, definitely. I think I think that's maybe half of it. And then the other half is people actually listening to the government that wants a lot of people to continue living in that fear. Hmm. Um, During COVID, you know, there's a lot of theories, but during COVID, they kept people at home. Like you weren't able to leave your home during COVID, except for once a week at your given time, depending on what number your ID number ended in. Uh, So the government had a lot of control over who would be allowed on the streets. If you were out on the streets, you would get arrested. And so there's a lot of theories here that it, that the government benefited so much from being able to do and move whatever they wanted because they had full control over cities that they still wanna keep kind of people crippled with fear so that when they say something, people obey. And so right now there's still a lot of fear being instilled in people about from COVID, um, from the government about COVID. And so it, it it's interesting to be back here and to come from the U.S., where it feels like you know everything's fine, we're all over COVID, and to get on a plane to Bolivia and be asked to put a face mask on. So how interesting? Yeah, how interesting. Bolivia. COVID aside, I think you know I could I could spend hours uh, talking about the, the the politics here, and and maybe yeah. someday we will. Uh, but I know that there's a lot to cover, but I just really want to make the point that. I think that what's happening in Bolivia is actually really important. And what's happening in Latin America is really important. And I think that a lot of people in the US don't realize it, it seems like something irrelevant that happens that's so far away. But I think that with the current administration in the US, and with what we're seeing as fine, as far as this, this shift in thought, a lot mm-hmm. of the time in the US with people becoming more okay with, with government overreach or even you know, becoming more open to the idea of a socialist country. I think that knowing what's happening in Latin America and being aware of the political affairs here is more important than ever for people in the US. They need to know that there's a socialist network that's taken over South America and they need to know what it's caused. And you know, we've talked about the Photo um, Sao Paulo before in our podcast but i don't think people realize how far it has spread and so i think it's important for us to keep talking about this on our podcast right uh, for people to be aware of 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 china and iran and russia that are interfering in the elections here that are infiltrating so many of our governments that are using so many tactics to dominate basically all of our sectors and so uh, I guess the only thing that I would want to end on there is people need to be aware of a lot of things. And three things that I would say that people need to pay attention to is we've wanted to talk about this on the podcast. We never have time. One of the things is the elections that just took place in in Paraguay in Paraguay in in late April oh, and the victory of the of Santiago Peña, who is actually that was actually a very positive thing. And so I I would just say people like need to pay attention, like let's find ways to talk about Paraguay, to support Paraguay, because this could be the start of maybe like a rightward shift in Latin America.
0: And in Argentina uh, as well, actually, they had, uh, I mean, uh, first round. Yeah, but very interesting outcomes there.
1: Yeah, and maybe that'll be a way to balance the scales a little bit, because now Brazil, we can't count on Brazil anymore. Yeah, but there's that. And then and then let's let's all p- pay attention to the elections that are happening in other countries as well. You know, as we know, Spain held their like snap general elections. That's right. Uh, that's something we've wanted to talk about, too. That was, I think, on the 23rd of last month. Yeah. Uh, but they're now in kind of this political gridlock.
0: Well, as they, we know because the results were
1: expecting.
0: Oh, sorry. I, I don't know if you saw in the past few days. Uh, I mean, you've been you've been out and about in, in uh, Cochabamba, but uh, uh, it it, it uh, turns out that the uh, the the Catalan independence uh, folks. Um, I ask the forgiveness forgiveness of any Catalonians who are listening to this. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Juntz? Juntz? Junts. I'm not sure. J-U-N-T-S yeah. is the name of the party, and it's controlled by, effectively, the Catalan secession leader who's currently in exile uh, in Brussels, but they've made a deal, and it looks like um, Pedro Sánchez is going to be back as the socialist prime minister of, uh, of Spain. Oh, geez. Very interesting outcomes. You know, th- 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 that, that uh, although it's kind of orthogonal to what I wanted to ask you about, but uh, I'll just comment on that briefly. Uh, that election uh, required the two biggest right-wing parties in Spain to uh, to basically form mm-hmm. a coalition to have a majority. And work together. Bit, yeah, to work together. So Partido Popular, which I would describe as center-right, and then there's uh, what's called the Vox Party, which uh, mm-hmm. is, uh, I mean, honestly, to an American conservative, uh, what Vox advocates would be nothing particularly unusual. In a European context, it continually gets described as far-right. I think that's very inaccurate. Uh-huh. They're proud of Spain. therefore, traditional values, the church, everything you know, normal marriage and things like that. And so they, they, um, uh, uh, they are, uh, but they're described as far right. What ended up happening, and I would encourage listeners who are interested in this to actually go look at it because it's an object lesson that applies beyond Spain, uh, is is that uh, Partido Popular uh, expanded uh, its its share of seats in. Um, uh, in the Spanish legislature, by quite a bit, but they did it uh, largely by cannibalizing seats from Vox, uh, and so Vox yeah. uh, collapses, and they don't actually expand uh, the coalition on the right, uh, and so that's it's uh, it's almost a tragedy. Uh, there will yeah. not be there will not be a uh, conservative government uh, in Spain now. We're going to have a continuance of more of the same. It'll be a fragile coalition. They'll probably have, you know, my guess is another election within, you know, 12 to 24 months. Um, But for now, the Mm -hmm. left has hung on and it has hung on in no small part because of operational errors on the Spanish right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And
1: it's sad because that's definitely not what anybody had predicted to happen.
0: Right. Right. It isn't. It isn't. But, uh, you know, you, you read your own press, and you become complacent, and uh, this is the kind of thing that happens uh, in the realm of politics. So, no one else to blame but to look inward. I, I-, I want to ask you two questions, if I could, Melissa, on uh, yep. you, know, y- you being out there. Um, uh, so, 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 question number one: uh, You know, you've talked about the socialists, you've talked about the left, and everything in in, in Bolivia and the rest of, of South uh, South America and Latin America writ large. Um, one thing that you haven't mentioned, uh, though, except uh, you kind of referenced it in passing, is this ideology of um, uh, indigenismo, right? Uh, so, so which mm-hmm. is which is sort of this this belief. I'm not even sure how to accurately synopsize it, but this belief that um, policy and politics ought to have a positive preference for uh, indigenous peoples, uh, which is which is a little bit academic, and you know, in like the United States, but in a place like Bolivia or Mexico or something like that, where there are these very large uh, indigenous populations, it becomes a real political force. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, and 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 the politics of that and kind of what it what it leads to, you know, you know, offhand, it, it doesn't seem like anything that that uh, that like we as classical liberals or conservatives in the American context would be against necessarily, um, uh, but it, it seems to time and time again be uh, leveraged and exploited by uh, actors on the left. Why is that? Can you can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, yes, it's been interesting. That wasn't really something that any of us here had heard of before uh until abel mm-hmm. because as i was telling you abel mobilized the, the 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 whole indigenous population because abel was the first indigenous president that bolivia ever had
0: ever really? and
1: he, ever yeah that's he extraordinary was very first okay, one. sorry go ahead
0: yeah. yeah
1: and and again the indigenous population didn't used to didn't used to vote a lot of them live out in the countryside a lot of them don't read or write and so he being indigenous him speaking uh, the native language of a lot of indigenous people here Ketua, Aymara, he mobilized a lot of people to come out and vote for him and the first time he was elected that's the reason why and a lot of people not just indigenous people a lot of people supported him because they thought that he would create Real change and maybe create a middle class, which is something that we we never had here before. Mm -hmm. There was a huge gap here, between between the the wealthy class and then the very poor indigenous people here. And I think everyone in Bolivia wanted to see that change. And so when he was elected, there was a lot of hope that that would happen. And what ended up happening is there was a lot of resentment that was created. Um, he spread a lot of a lot of hate a lot of division um encouraging people from indigenous roots to basically like take back what is rightfully theirs so so land um you know natural resources all of that and then he made promises that uh, he would help them take back what was theirs and then he started with the threats of he would start seizing land he would start taxing the rich you know mm-hmm. a lot of the kind of language that we hear a lot, even in the U.S., that people want to see, right? Like, let's yeah. text the rich, let's do this, let's do that. And so that started happening here. And then there started being like this kind of glorification of like what it was to be indigenous. He started flying the, we have this flag here that we call the wipala You might have seen it before. It's like a it's checkerboard, kind
0: of, like a rainbow checkerboard. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's Like yeah. a huge rainbow checkerboard with different colors. And it's I think the meaning behind it is actually really beautiful. It was the meaning of like how diverse Bolivia is, how many cultures we have, how many different languages we have, like the native people, that all all of that. But it was it was taken and it and it was used to promote like pretty much the superiority of of the indigenous population here in Bolivia. And Evo started doing things such as requiring. Quechua to be taught in schools instead of English, for example. Hmm. Like one one little thing, Uh, before schools would teach English, it's the most spoken language around the world. It benefits kids. It helps kids get into better schools, get better jobs. But instead, even in private schools, even in the American school that I went to, we were required to learn and take Quechua so that we would have to basically like learn how to communicate with the native population, but they wouldn't need to learn spanish to communicate with the rest of the population and so there was a shift in little things like that Uh, i remember there was talks about seizing land if anyone had more than one property then that was vain they didn't they didn't need it you just need one property to live on Mm. and if you ever had more than one property like for example my family did um they they had to sell it because there was real fears that the government was taking the land that wasn't being used or that people maybe had bought hoping that it would appraise over the years. Well, guess what? There's people that needed that land and and it was being taken. And so it's interesting what happened with Abel. but a lot of indigenous people actually shifted against him when they saw what was happening to the economy. And there was a lot of people that voted for him and that had high hopes for him, even indigenous people. That were out there protesting him because of the injustice that actually happens when socialism is done right.
0: Right. And right. so it hits yeah, them too. Yeah, so
1: that was interesting to see in 2019.
0: Um, uh, as 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 you know, uh, it's been a major theme in in Mexico as well, and you know this is something that uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, current president of Mexico, yep. has has spoken about a lot uh, when he does the um, uh, the, the the annual grito. Yeah, on on September fifteenth, the night of September fifteenth, sixteen, um, uh, he you know they kind of write their own, and so he always talks about um, uh, las culturas uh, indígenas uh, de, de de Mexico and las culturas prehispános de Mexico. Um, uh, sort of so, sort of this idea that, that these populations, which seems like a disastrous idea in a mixed society, which characterizes every single Latin American society out there. Um, but this idea that those particular populations are the only real, authentic representatives of the nation, uh, that, the, that the nation reposes in, in this population, but not that one, at the same time. And you see it. You know, you and I have talked about it before. in in uh, in, in Mexico, and sort of the turn against the Spanish inheritance too. Uh, now, right. now the reality. I won't speak for Bolivia, but uh, I imagine it's it's probably concurrent. And tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but in Mexico and most of Latin America, I mean, these are these are the you know um, uh, the mestizo nations, right? They're the the nations of the mezcla, and so it's a mix yeah. of the indigenous and and European culture that makes them fundamentally what they are. and so to turn away from one half of that is almost to cut off a piece of your own inheritance, isn't it? I mean, it's it's um it's 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 denying uh, you know one half of of uh, who you are and you know presumably ought to be. what you uh, any thoughts on that? do you disagree with that? go ahead.
1: no I, I think that's very accurate. I think. I think it's created a lot of division because I'm a proud Bolivian, my family is too, but we are made to feel a lot of the time like outsiders because we don't speak Quechua or because we are not indigenous or because, because we don't understand like the, the struggles, uh, you know? And so I, I think that's 100% accurate. And I see a lot of parallels between Bolivia and Mexico in other ways, but that's certainly one, definitely.
0: It's almost an object lesson. This is something in the United States too, although our context is obviously yeah. different. But it's a warning against what happens when you do try to center one group of, of citizenry over the other, right? And so, and so yeah. because you're you're always going to create the ins and the outs, uh, and there's no, it's not consonant with kind of a liberal, um, peaceful atmosphere of toleration that's required for democratic civics. Let me ask you one last thing, uh, and I know I've eat, we've eaten up uh, the majority of our time. I'm looking at the clock right here, uh, so we've got like 15 minutes left uh, to talk about. So, so, oh, so we'll, we'll, have, we'll have more to talk about next week, though, because um, there's been so much happening uh, in Mexico. But I really want to take this opportunity to talk about Bolivia, where you are, you know, because you're there. And it's just it's 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 amazing. Um, you left out one detail uh, about the overthrow of Evo Morales that I think is incredibly illustrative. So, you probably remember it. Do you remember who came and rescued him and flew him out of the country in 2019? Oh,
1: of course.
0: Yeah, tell us. Let
1: me tell you. I remember, and people here remember, no one's forgotten. Our good friend, AMLO. Yeah. He sent the Mexican Air Force down to Bolivia.
0: Yeah. And flew him out.
1: And he left with all these, you know, I think it was a private airplane of the Mexican Air Force, like you said. Mm -hmm. He had all these. Like they went, what we call here an escolta, basically these these like bodyguards protecting him, and and he was flown there like a celebrity.
0: Amazing, amazing, and then and then yeah. he appears. He's well, been I've appearing at uh, official Mexican uh, state functions ever since. That's uh, that's been that's been the, even in exile, Amlo will put him up there on the uh, on the dais and exhibit him from time to time. So it's 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 very telling.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting. He he still. He's still a big voice um, as far as like the left wing, even though he's not the president anymore, a lot of people think he still pulls a lot of the strings and he's still a big voice in basically anytime socialists talk, he still gives comments, he still congratulates people that win elections, he still condemns a lot of things that happen around here and believe it or not, he still has like he has a huge following he has a lot of fans and so yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's unfortunate. But you can tell a lot by who supports who. It's it's I mean, just this week, I think it was yesterday, right? The the Guatemala elections.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. Ber- Bernardo Arevalo, who's the, the left wing candidate, uh, won in the runoff election. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading I, I, like one of the first things I looked up is I wanted to see who were like the first people to congratulate him, because I always find that fascinating after an election. And sure enough, like all the left wing leaders were tweeting out and celebrating. And that includes Bolivia, that includes Mexico, that included Honduras, that included that included Taiwan. And, and I think that's very telling. So again. I know we're wrapping up the, the Bolivia talk a little bit, but we can continue talking <laughs> a little bit more about it next week. But I guess I would just encourage people to, to realize how much these things affect us. I know they're far away, but they're very relevant. We need to be aware of what's going on so that we can find ways to help. And yeah. and uh, not not just to help because we want to help them, but because the things that are happening in Latin America and the things that just happened in Guatemala will affect the U.S. They yeah. already have been. That's Guatemala right. has been struggling. They're facing super high rates of poverty, of, of violence. And, and guess what? Um, there are huge waves of migrants leaving Guatemala right now. And, and they represent, I think, the largest chunk of Central Americas that are seeking to come into the United States. Yeah. And so these are important things to be to be aware of. And another quick thing that I, I guess I wanted, we never got a chance to talk about this on the podcast, but I wanted to touch on is um, the assassination of the Ecuadorian presidential candidate, oh, Fernando de yeah. Yeah. yeah, We never got to talk about that yet. But but it was two weeks ago, almost exactly, it was on a Wednesday, I think. Mm-hmm. And he was killed at a campaign event in in Quito. And he had this like legitimate reputation for wanting to combat corruption. And he was a very strong opposition to uh, Rafael Correa, who is now living in exile for being corrupt, right? Right, right.
0: Left-wing, uh, yes. another left-wing uh, ex-president in exile.
1: Yes, just just one more. But but I just, I think these are very important things to talk about because Villavicencio, he was very, you know, very unlikely to win. Uh, but he campaigned on this promise that he would expose the cartels and that he would reveal all of their links to corrupt politicians and he had already said i think in an interview in, in july he had said that he had been threatened by the sinaloa cartel yes that they would kill him if he didn't stop and so this is something that people need to know that's happening it's a huge blow to democracy yeah and and it's important now because ecuador has zero chance of fair elections now and zero chance that they will have a government that will alter the course of how powerful cartels are getting worldwide. Yeah. And so I think it's something that more Americans should be talking about.
0: It's extraordinary, uh, and, and I haven't I haven't followed the aftermath of the assassination as closely as I ought to have. I mean, my recollection was that within about 48 hours, they arrested a, uh, a cohort of Colombians. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, you know that that, that doesn't necessarily uh, tell us uh, you know who is actually behind it. Uh, I, I think what's amazing and what what our listeners ought to understand is how profoundly unusual it is and how alarming it is that a um, that an Ecuadorian you, you know you might ask like like what do I care what happens in politics in Ecuador right so they assassinate a candidate you know mm-hmm. I'm I live in I live in Cleveland you know who cares about that. <laughs> Fair, a fair thing to say, but there's an answer to it, um, and, and the answer is that it really, it really illuminates just the profound hemispheric and even global reach of the Mexican criminal cartels. The fact that this guy, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the late candidate, could be out there saying that my life is under threat from the Sinaloa cartel, which which, which happens yeah. to be probably the, like the favorite cartel of the current president of Mexico, uh, and then he mm-hmm. is killed, whether or not by them, we you know, I don't think we fully know yet. Uh, that that reach from Sinaloa all the way to Ecuador is matched by a reach from Sinaloa all the way into whatever community you live in, uh, dear listener, whether you're in Maine, Washington State, Idaho, Kansas, or in South Texas. And that's something that's terrifically important to understand, that these organizations are absolutely everywhere. And of course, what did we hear from AMLO uh, when uh, when somebody asked him about it? He, uh, he did what he usually does, and he made excuses for the Sinaloans, uh, which has become this this repeat um, pattern at this point. Can, can, can we talk about something? I know we've got we've got less than ten minutes left. Uh, so again, yes. my apologies to, to to the listeners on this. Uh, th- there was a very important uh, discourse by former Attorney General William Barr. Uh, so Bill Barr mm-hmm. uh, uh, talked, and uh, I actually, you know, I don't remember what the forum forum was. Was it was it the Aspen National Security uh, Forum? But he talked about uh, U.S. military solutions in Mexico. Um, in any case, uh, whatever the forum was, and I'm sorry, I've I've uh, temporarily blanked on it, but we'll put the link to it uh, in the show description after right. this is done. Uh, but he he actually directly addressed this question of, of, of what uh, an intervention an intervencion uh, intervention, in uh, Mexico would mm-hmm. look like uh, against the cartels. And I think he made some very sound points uh, that, you know, when we talk about the need, and as you know, we've been very much in favor of putting it on the table. Um, you know, we're not in favor of of you know going and bombing Mexico, which has kind of been this very lazy journalistic shorthand and also very lazy policy shorthand among a lot of our friends on the left uh, for what this policy proposal is. But this idea that you have networks that are susceptible to disruption on the other side of the border um, and that they must be disrupted yeah. because of the present threat that they, they constitute to the United States, to our communities, to our children, and so on. Um, uh, and, and, and Barr made the point that, uh, that we do have a template for doing this kind of thing. It's not occupation. It's not invasion, as classically understood. But what it is is prudent and judicious use of all available tools of the state, including military, uh, to enter Mexico when needed, uh, to interdict, arrest, kill uh, mm-hmm. when necessary mm-hmm. um, uh, the members of these networks. And uh, anyway, I've I've spoken at length on it. Uh, again, we think this must be on the table. Uh, any thoughts on your end, Melissa? I mean, what's what's the view from? Uh, I mean, not even the view from South America. What's the view from Latin America like uh, when when these conversations happen on the U.S. side?
1: Well, I think I I can't I can't speak for everybody, but I think I will say a lot of people here also have the view that like the U.S. has done too much to try to get into things that are none of their business, like the last president Evo Morales said this all the time mm-hmm. and he blamed the fact that he had to flee bolivia because the u.s was like getting in the way and they were intervening in things that didn't that that they, that they shouldn't have been intervening in mm. uh, obviously i disagree i guess i have more more questions than anything else i Please. i read the stuff about bill barr i i read the stuff about our former general uh, attorney attorney general and i thought it was very interesting i guess we have talked we have talked a lot, even on this podcast, about what it would look like to enlist the U.S. military to target the Mexican cartels. Mm-hmm. I just, I how, could you tell me a little bit about, about how the proposal is any different? Like, I know he's not suggesting that we bomb them, as you just said. Right. But he's basically just saying, like, we should have more research, more intelligence, or... Or what's the suggestion?
0: All of the above, uh, you know, and and I don't think any of the conversation, at least that I've seen, and and of course neither you nor I are privy to any operational planning, which, in candor, I don't think actually exists. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, DoD that doesn't want anything to do with this because um, they'd rather focus on Ukraine and Taiwan because there's there's yeah, mm. it's just politically uh, politically more feasible. Uh, but, but look, you know, the, the, the credible conversations. Well, let me describe the non-credible conversations first, because I think it's worth contrasting. The non-credible conversations really do involve things like, quote unquote, bombing Mexico, going in and, and you know, conducting airstrikes and treating Mexico, uh, you know, as, as a whole, as, as an enemy state. Um, that's a non-starter we're not gonna invade Mexico in the sense that we're gonna invade and occupy. There's gonna be no occupation. I mean, there, there, there are there are ways to do this that are profoundly foolish uh, and profoundly counterproductive and, and, and that frankly, in the long run, we'll lose. You know, you know, I started with, with with this book, The Last Emperor of Mexico, which is about a European power trying to oh, occupy gosh. Mexico uh, and eventually failing. Now they failed in, in no small part because the United States ensured that they failed. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there's 121 million people in Mexico. Mexicans are patriotic yeah. too. in the long run. That's not on the table. But what can be on the table given a particular politics, and and it is the understanding and the execution of that politics that that provides, you know, to borrow from Burke, the context and the quality for all things uh, uh, is, you know, we, I say we, the United States Armed Forces, uh, has a robust generational experience in a lot of the skill sets, local coalition building, uh, special forces activity, you know, specifically understood as being, you know, what we call the Green Berets, um uh, uh, intelligence gathering uh, you know, disruption of insurgency networks and so on, that can be put to use in a place like Mexico. And as you and I have talked about many times, you know, ideally, you would want that to be done in partnership with the Mexican state, you would think that the Mexican state has a positive interest in rolling up these networks. And by the way, there's polling data, it's not good polling data, but it's, uh, but it's out there. Um, there's polling data that at least suggests that there is a critical mass of Mexicans themselves who would be open to okay. American engagement and help in this. I wouldn't put too much stock in in it, but just be aware that it's there. So uh, you know, we 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 do that, and that would be the ideal scenario. And I think this would be not to speak for Bill Barr, but I think this is probably what he would like: is 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 to have that partnership with the Mexicans. Now, in his remarks, he said, and he's right about this, that right now there is no partnership with the Mexicans. I mean, th- th- there just isn't. On an yeah. official basis, uh, uh, there is just a complete collapse of trust. And, and real operational uh, competence in, uh, in in the Mexican side and so and so in the absence of that partnership then what become the kind of the policy drivers and kind of the policy defaults that you have to work with uh, well the United States of America uh, has an obligation to protect Americans um, with any tools at its disposal within the bounds of prudence and one of the things that the, the United States needs to consider is using those tools and understanding that ultimately, our respect, and and we ought to respect Mexican sovereignty, by the way, there's no question about that. But our respect for that sovereignty ought not properly extend any further than the Mexican state's own respect for that sovereignty. The reality is that the Mexican state does not respect its own sovereignty, having ceded 30 to 40, maybe 45 percent of its own territory to the cartels. And so the bar for us (laughs) should not be higher than it is for them. We have a positive obligation to act in defense of American citizens. And if that means that there's uh, you know, Green Berets in northern Mexico, which is something I think that, you know, for mm-hmm. example, Congressman Michael Waltz has talked about, um, if we use the ISIS model to disrupt their networks, which is what Bill Barr specifically referred to, then uh, that should be part of the policy conversation. Uh, my hope is that the existence of that conversation would shock the Mexicans into doing the right thing. My guess is that they're counting on the Biden administration, which has no intention of defending American interests to fly cover for them. Um, but here's the thing, whatever administration you're banking on in the United States, it's gonna change sooner or later. And when that time comes, uh, my, my fear is that there's gonna be a lot of bills come due and there'll be bills that the Mexican side has racked up um, to an extraordinary degree in Washington, D.C. So, how's that for a closer? Can we, can, I think
1: that's great. Can Thanks. we end on a happy note, though? Unfortunately, as always, we have so much left to cover, but wait,
0: wait, wait, we'll be wait, back wait. next week. Wait, no, no, no. Don't stop recording yet, Jefferson. I want to ask one last oh, thing because okay. I want to end on a happy note. Oh. It's been broiling here in the United States. Right now, it is, let's see, it's 104 degrees in Austin, Texas. Tell wow. me about the weather. Tell me about the weather on the Altiplano in Bolivia. How is it?
1: It's perfect. It makes me realize how spoiled I've been all these years and haven't realized it. Right now, it's about seventy nine eighty, sure. um, which is absolutely perfect. It's it's four thirty right now, so it's it's nice. It gets chilly in the afternoon, late afternoon. It gets chilly in the morning. It's very warm at around one. And the funny thing is right now it's winter but our weather never varies very much. Like year-round it's just perfect, especially in my city, in Cochabamba. So not to make you jealous, but-
0: I am jealous. Weather here is
1: absolutely perfect. I'm sorry you're all scorching in Texas. (laughs) That's one thing I'm not looking forward to.
0: No, I get you. Well, uh, then then enjoy your time for all those problems. Enjoy your time on Paradise on Earth. Thank you for joining us all the way from (laughs) Cochabamba. And uh, would you would you like to exit us from the show, please? I'll give it to you.
1: Yes, thank you so much to all of our listeners, and we will be back with more next week. Thank you, Josh, for your time.
0: Thanks, Melissa.